All right, Genesis is where we are. Genesis chapter 17, as we take up the word this morning, uh, our text uh, we'll be looking at this morning, verses 15 through 27, uh, half of the chapter. And if you use the church Bible, lots of those in the room, you'll find that in page 12. So help yourself to one of those. If you do not own a Bible, if you do not own a paper copy of the Bible, uh, I think they're useful, uh, help yourself. You can actually take that home. Write your name in it. We won't consider it stealing. Uh, it's your Bible if you need it, all right? All right, uh, Genesis chapter 17. We're looking at verses 15 through 27. Let's give our attention to God's word as it is being read. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house. And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God said to him, Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. This is God's word. We're grateful that we have the word so easily at hand. Uh, let's give it the respect that it deserves, being the very voice of God in our ears. I invite you to pray with me as uh, we ask for the Lord's help in this time of proclaiming it. So please join me in prayer. Father in heaven, uh, the word that lies open before us, you have spoken it. It is living, it is active, sharper than a double-edged sword as your word tells us. And it divides soul and spirit, joints and marrow. And it discerns our thoughts and intentions. So God, in light of that, we want to come to you knowing that the means by which we are grown, the means by which we are saved, is by hearing what you have to say. So give us attentive minds, open ears, willing hearts, so that we hear you Lord, uh, a mere man, of course, cannot accomplish anything of eternal and lasting value. So as the messenger of this word this morning, um, I don't want to get in the way 
But at the same time, we're looking for something beyond my voice. We're looking for your voice. So make it happen in our minds and uh, help us to respond to you as we ought that that change that you desire in us would be brought about. And this is all we pray for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Uh, my, my father, and maybe you had a parent or somebody close in your life, uh, my father used to tell me uh, that making assumptions was not helpful. When you assume, son, he would tell me, well, let's just say that... Uh, it would end up revealing that I'm more like a uh, less distinguished member of the equine family, if you get what I mean. And uh, some of you are unfamiliar with that expression, but ask someone. But, but really, assumptions are, well, they're assumed, aren't they? Because in the absence of information or when something just seems hidden, we often feel like we need to make decisions or, or draw certain conclusions we do this all the time. It's not something that we don't do. It it's clearly happens all the time. And it's not always wrong to assume either. But it's certainly not always the right thing as well. Now in our text, Abraham has made an assumption. And in the absence of specific information, his human reason led him to a certain conclusion about how God, God's promise to him would ultimately be fulfilled. In the first part of this chapter, we dealt with this last week, uh, the Lord has returned to Abraham and has reaffirmed his covenant with him. And Abraham is told how to live in light of that covenant. He is given a covenant name, no longer Abram, exalted father, but now Abraham, father of a multitude. But then he's also given this physical sign, a, a seal of the covenant in circumcision on the males. Now, in the second part of this chapter, the Lord now tells Abraham that his wife Sarai has an important role to play, that she indeed will be the mother of the covenant son. And I take it to this point he had assumed differently. He had assumed differently, and the Lord brings him to the place where he needs to understand rightly. So as we uh, move through this section of the scriptures, um, I just put down three headings because I didn't really know how to organize it because in my mind, this is just kind of how we'll unpack it this morning. So first of all, we're going to look at the blessing. Uh, my second heading, uh, I've titled A Laughing Matter, and you'll see what I mean in a moment. And then third, Set Apart. So the blessing a laughing matter, and then set apart. First of all, the blessing, the blessing. Now, conceiving, of course, conceiving and having children, it's, it's normal, right? We, we celebrate it. And, and really, I think that's true that the vast majority of married couples long for children. But yet the normalcy of it never seems to diminish the fact that it is viewed as the most amazing blessing. And, and I would say this, even in our messed up world, and Aaron prayed against this, where abortion is so common, it's ironic, perhaps, but perhaps not surprising, even the, the strongest advocates for the barbaric act of, of eliminating the unborn, they are deeply grieved when the desired pregnancy miscarries. And they are overjoyed when they welcome a baby into the light of day. And I think it's true that moms 
even feel this more profoundly than fathers. Now, as we look at our text, it's been 25 years since Abraham was told that he would be the father of a great nation. And 13 years prior to the moment that we're dealing with in the text, he had fathered a child by Hagar. This is Sarai's maid servant. That scheme that Sarai offered up to Abraham, it seemed practical. Have a child through my maid servant. But Sarai doesn't likely feel very blessed in this. And perhaps she even feels sidelined. And, and I think at this point it's safe to assume that Abraham has assumed, he has concluded in his mind that Ishmael is the fulfillment of the promise. No doubt he is aware of what the Lord told Hagar, that her son Ishmael would, would have offspring that would not be numbered for multitude. That's Genesis 16.10. And in fact, in, in our text, Abraham dere- uh, receives direct confirmation about Ishmael in verse 20. There will be 12 princes come from him. But we know, and we're, we're standing from the perspective of the narrator, we know that the Lord never intended that the son of the promise was to be born through anyone but Abraham's wife, Sarai. And so here in our text, what the Lord is doing is he's bringing Abraham up to speed on his plan. And he wants to make certain that Abraham um, knows that the Lord intends to bless Sarai. Now, in the previous section, the first half of the chapter, we, we find that Abram's name had been changed to Abraham. And now we get to verse 15. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. Now, it's not entirely clear from the text how the name Sarai is different from Sarah. Both names mean princess. So the implication that 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 she will have offspring. But the Lord's making a point. The Lord is confirming something to her. What follows, I think, should suffice as an explanation because the Lord says to Abraham about Sarai, now Sarah, I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Again, this is, this is a, a direct, perhaps, confrontation to the very assumption that Abraham had made. And the specific blessing to Sarah is that she is now included in Abraham's blessing. Not Hagar. She is included in that blessing. She had not been replaced in the Lord's plan. She had not been sidelined. And even though it was Sarah's idea to present Hagar as an alternative, as a concubine for Abraham, the Lord didn't change his plan for her. It had been for her all along. Clearly, Abraham's assumption is wrong. But not only would, would Sarah bear a son, and, that would, and I, I take it that that would uh, satisfy one of her mo- uh, absolutely deepest longings, the importance of childbearing, especially in that culture. But, but I don't know if it's much less diminished today, even though society tries to take the importance away. A woman who longs to have a child and is bereft feels profoundly that some of your experience here today, it, if you desire children, you feel, if you've longed for children, 
and you have not been able to conceive. You feel that. Women go to great lengths. Couples go to great lengths today to conceive. And so her most profound longing would ultimately be satisfied. But beyond that, that son would be set apart to fulfill the promise that the Lord made to Abraham of innumerable multitude. Something distinct from the promise through Ishmael. And now that promise was imminent. Conception would be very soon. Verse 21, I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. So the promise was anchored in an even more ancient promise. And we need to see this as we've moved through the, from the beginning of Genesis. That promise that, that's being made to Abraham about Sarah, it's anchored in a, in a more profound, more ancient promise. The promise made to Eve, Adam and Eve together, that promise that was embedded in a curse on the, on the serpent that tempted Eve to sin, that her offspring, this is Genesis 3.15, that Eve's offspring would someday deal a death blow to the serpent whose offspring had infected the whole of creation. The serpent and his offspring had infected all of creation with a curse. So here now, Sarah is in this line of wives of these antediluvian patriarchs, those that, are, that were before the flood, mothers of sons through whom the promise of the Lord would ultimately be fulfilled by this son, by Sarah's son. She, that is Sarah, shall become nations, kings of peoples. Now as we follow the story beyond this through, through Genesis, we're going to meet other mothers, Rebecca, then Leah, and Rachel, and their sons, and their tribes. And then through the pages of the, the, the rest of Scripture, the preeminent son of Jacob, Judah, and his progeny, leading to King David, and finally to the covenant son par excellence, the, the final and supreme fulfillment of the promise in the divine Son of God who took on human flesh. Now, we know this, reading the scripture. I wonder if Sarah could have known how profound, how eternally consequential it was that the Lord visited Abraham and declared that she would be the one through whom the Lord would fulfill his promise. We must see the blessing to Abraham, that blessing to Sarah, is a blessing for all people. She's not the only beneficiary of this blessing. It is a blessing for every age, for every people group, whether, whether physically descended from Abraham or not. Because it was as the Lord told Abraham, in you, this is Genesis 12, 3, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families. Not, not just your physical line. All the families. Sarah was blessed by the Lord because the Lord chose to give her a son in fulfillment of his promise. And that son would ultimately be the offspring through whom the promise was eternally secured. And we're pointing, of course, to Christ. But, but the greater blessing, the greater blessing, the true and lasting blessing from the Lord for her was one and the same as Abraham's blessing, even before he had a glimpse of the promise. It's the blessing in that he believed 
he believed. And so what's the blessing that comes from believing? Well, the Lord counted to Abraham that very belief in what God had said. It's the word of God that he trusted. And the Lord counted that to Abraham as righteousness. And that's a blessing for all the nations. Those who believe the Lord, Abraham, Sarah, all that came after, and those who were never part of that family line, all who have come to the Lord in faith, who believed, who believed the word of the Lord, to them, God counts it as righteous, which means you're accepted in God's sight. Do you believe the Lord this morning? Have you trusted the Lord? That is the only way that you're going to be counted righteous in God's sight. And you can know that blessing. You can know that today in the very same way. And if you have believed, you can enjoy that blessing today if you've looked to the Son of God. And I say looked. Well, we haven't seen him, of course, with our physical eyes. But we can behold the Son of God with the eyes of faith. It's just as Jesus told one of his disciples, Thomas, who doubted after Jesus was raised. Ah, I'm not going to believe it until I see him with my own eyes and touch his wounds. Jesus appears to him in that upper room. Thomas sees the risen Savior, Jesus, the Son of God who was crucified and put in a tomb. He sees him standing right there in front of him and he worships Jesus. But in light of the doubt that he had brought to that, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Those physical eyes. And then he says this, for our benefit, blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you haven't seen the physical form of the Son of God but you've seen him with the eyes of faith. And if you have, you are blessed. You are blessed. Anyone who's looked to the Son of God in faith is blessed. Well, second, um, my heading here is a laughing matter, a laughing matter. Now, being a typical dad, uh, I have a few jokes that amuse me more than they do my family. That's kind of par for the course. And uh, if you're asking my kids, they'll likely tell you that in an attempt to extract everything possible out of that joke, I probably overuse it. That's, it's the dad way, I think. That's just, once you become a dad, you do dad jokes. And it doesn't, you don't lose it. When you're a grandfather, you just become more dumb, silly. <laughs> you're long to, to, to delight your children. I, this is not in my... I, I did this. I, I'm, so, I'm so loving to, to just see the delight in my grandchildren's face. I, I, I saw somebody walking on the, the trail with a stroller, and in my mind I was convinced, oh, that's my granddaughter, and I wanted to make her laugh, and uh, it wasn't, but I tried to make her laugh anyway, and uh, I thought, well, I feel kind of silly. This strange mom is I'm making faces at her kid, but that's just me. I want, I want to make them delighted. Well, anyway, uh, Humor, humor's good, right? We like humor because it can break tension. It helps us see something positive when there's a lot of negativity, right? Um, laughing can also ease our grief at times. It's been, I've seen it at, at funerals, and it's not a disrespect to the one who has died. It's just simply a way of bringing lightness to the situation. It helps assuage 
the grief. But the thing about humor is that it can also reveal our own weakness, and it can put the spotlight on things that are absurd or unusual. And sometimes the funniest things are when the tables get turned. Here's what I'm thinking. Abraham laughed when he heard that Sarah, who had been barren her whole life, and now, by human reckoning, too old to conceive, that she would truly have a son. He laughed. But then God turns the tables. Look at verse 17 with me. Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? He laughed. The Lord told Abraham that he would give him a son by his wife, Sarah. Now, in that encounter, Abraham falls on his face. So there's reverence going on here. Hearing the voice, this is in fact the second time it's happened. Back, back in verse 3, we see he falls on his face there. So he's hearing the voice of the Lord. He falls down. But while he's down on his face, he's kind of chuckling to himself. It's funny. Sarah? Me? Father through Sarah? So what kind of laughter is this? What kind of laughter is this? The, the Hebrew word um, can be translated, you know, it's tzahak. Laugh, mock, play, to make sport of, and you can see where this is going. But the word has a, a larger range of uses. In fact, this word is used later, we'll see this in Genesis 26, where Abimelech observes Isaac caressing, and the word there is the same, Sahak, laughing with his wife Rebecca. Chapter 18, uh, we'll get to this uh, week after next. Sarah overhears the Lord telling Abraham that, that she'll conceive. So Sarah overhears this. And she also laughs, has the same thought as her husband. After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have this pleasure? Now, in chapter 18, it seems that the Lord rebukes Sarah for this laughter. And then, out of her fear, she then denies having laughed. So, we're left wondering, what is this laughter? What's going on here? Was it a lack of faith on Sarah's part? Was it a lack of faith on Abraham's part? Well, the writer of Hebrews affirms Sarah. The writer of Hebrews has no disapproval for Sarah. She's described in that hall of faith. That's Hebrews 11, 11. She's commended there. So the best I can make of, of what's going on here is that Abraham and then later Sarah are are laughing perhaps at themselves. And, and, and I'm sure it does in some sense reveal that their faith is small. But I take it that they're, it's a kind of surprised delight, a surprised delight that the Lord would bring such a thing about. God would do this. Huh, would you look at that? Isn't that interesting? You know, that kind of, whew, really? It's not a doubt that the Lord could do it, but, but a surprise that, that because it seems so unusual and humanly impossible, the thought of his wife, barren all her life, and now this menopausal woman conceiving. Bemusement, I guess. Delighted surprise. It's, uh, you know, maybe you'll have to pardon me like the Huskers winning the national championship. Really? 
for me, the Toronto Maple Leafs winning the Stanley Cup. Huh. I might chuckle. I'll go, really? You're, that's going to happen? Not since 1967. Yeah, I'm keeping track. So, bemusement. I guess that's, that's what I say. But anyway, what happens next could be a little confusing. Verse 18, Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Now, it, it looks here like uh, Abraham is now negotiating, negotiating with the Lord that Ishmael be the son of the promise because Abraham is, presumes that's, well, the, Lord, um, you know, Sarah's barren. I mean, it's not sad, but it's like, this is rather interesting, but hey, here's Ishmael, and I kind of thought he was the guy. He's now 13 years old. And, and really, to this point, we have no record in the scripture of the Lord rejecting Ishmael as the covenant son. We don't have that specifically laid out. And, and indeed, the Lord did promise to bless Ishmael with numerous offspring, so it would seem to kind of fit. Lord, you said he would have many offspring. And, and maybe, maybe it's his fatherly love. He doesn't want Ishmael to be utterly rejected. Abram pleads, verse 18, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. That, that phrase, live before you, that's the mass, vast majority of the English translations of, of the Bible. But other translations put there, oh, that he might be acceptable before you. Oh, oh that he might be blessed. So whatever Abraham might mean, the Lord is very clear with him. Yes, Ishmael will father a multitude, but he is not. He is not the son of the promise. Now, here's, here's where I take it that the Lord has turned the tables on Abraham. I, I'm looking, I was looking for some way to describe this, but follow me with this. Abraham laughed at the idea that Sarah would conceive. And then look, what's, look what the Lord does. Verse 19. Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. So, so to me, what's, what's great about this is the name that God chose. And some of you know where this is going. Isaac. Yitzhak. Meaning, he laughs. That's what the Lord named him. So in naming this son of Sarah, he laughs. I was asking the question, who laughs? Who laughs? Abraham? Yes. Sarah? Yes. <laughs> and then the next chapter... Uh, not the next chapter. Well, Sarah laughs in the next chapter, but then in chapter 21, there also, as Sarah said, others laugh with her or at her. Genesis 21, 6, and Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. Well, I want you to consider this as we think about this. Maybe it's that Isaac represents that God laughs. Not bemusement, Lord's never surprised, so it's not that, but rather his way of pointing out the absurdity of not trusting him, of not ultimately resting in his promises, of thinking that God, so on Abraham's part and, and, and Sarah's part, of thinking somehow that God needs the schemes of man to accomplish his purpose. What scheme? Again, Abraham taking the concubine Hagar to acquire the offspring 
that the Lord promised. The Lord made the promises and, well, my wife, she's barren. Okay, what can I do about that? I need to help you, Lord. Let me get this concubine and I'll have a child by her. And Isaac, he laughs, his name, comes along. And it's God proving that he does not accomplish his purposes according to human wisdom. God's laughing. Now think about this. Where else is that true? Isn't it the gospel of Jesus? Now, we look through Scripture. Certainly, Jesus checked all the prophetic boxes, right? From the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49.10, check. Born in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2, check. Called out of Egypt, Matthew 2.15, Hosea 11.1, check. A prophet like Moses, Deuteronomy 18.18, check. A priest in the order of Melchizedek, Genesis 14.18, Psalm 110.4, check. I know I'm buzzing through these, just to know that where I'm getting these from is Scripture. If you want them later, I'll give them to you. He's the suffering servant. Isaiah 53, check. Yet, with all of that, Jesus came to his own people and his own people did not receive him. John 1.11, right? And why? Why did they not receive him? Probably because he bypassed the, the religious leaders of his day. He didn't seek the approval of the self-appointed religious gatekeepers, the, the self-righteous elite, so he was rejected. But that rejection was exactly what needed to happen. So those religious leaders, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the priests, those colluding with the Roman authorities, they thought that they were dealing with the Jesus problem. They have him falsely accused, crucified in public shame. They could be done with him. And it, here's where I see the humor Maybe God mocking the, the, the schemes of man. They didn't know that they were tools of the very serpent himself. So like a venomous snake, like the serpent, like their father the devil, these religious leaders, they struck the heel of the Son of God with a fatal blow. Yes, he was put in the tomb. But unlike the serpent and unlike every other created being, the Lord of life is unkillable. Uh, yes, he was murdered, buried in a tomb. But ultimately, he was unkillable, right? And the only reason that Jesus went to the grave is that he gave himself to it. He said, I lay my life down. I take it up again. No one takes my life from me. The one who is the way and the truth and the life could not be held down. Now, it all looks so foolish to the religious elite. And I dare say when we think about this in our culture today, it looks foolish to many of our contemporaries, doesn't it? The Son of God, the Son of God, humbled himself by becoming obedient to death on a cross, Philippians 2.18. Jesus became a curse for us by hanging on a tree, Galatians 3, 13. The Son of Man became sin for us, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. You think you can save yourself? Ha! God laughs. No. 
Humble yourself before the one who humbled himself. Become a fool in the eyes of the world wise and trust the one who is shamed and cursed for you. That's how the Apostle Paul wrote. I love how he says it in 1 Corinthians 1. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. And to what end? What purpose? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Abraham could not boast before the Lord. Look, look, I got an heir. <laughs> no, Abraham, that's not the way it works. Lord says, you were amused by the thought that Sarah would conceive at 90? Who's laughing now, Abraham? Huh? There's just no boasting before the Lord. God takes what seems impossible to the wise and turns it on its head. And so we think about this. How could a, how could a Messiah who dies lead anyone, save anyone? It all seemed so foolish. And really, I can't help but think that the serpent, the devil, actually thought he was going to win one over on God when Jesus was crucified. I, I can't help that he thought it. He certainly convinced a lot of religious people. I can't know, of course, what the devil may have known before Jesus was crucified, but when Jesus walked out of that tomb, leaving it empty, certainly the devil knew he was done for. And, uh, and as I was thinking about this, I, I was just, my mind was drawn to a singer-songwriter of several years back. His name is Keith Green. I love this song, but I love his take on this. Listen to this. It, it's so, it's so table-turning. Swallowed into earth's dark womb, and death has triumphed. That's what they say. But tried to hold him in the tomb, the son of life rose on the third day. Just look, the gates of hell, they're falling, crumbling from the inside out. He's bursting through the, through the walls with laughter. Ha! He writes. Listen to the angels shout. It is finished. He has done it. Life conquered death. Jesus Christ has won it. His plan of battle, you know it. He fooled them all. They led him off to prison to die, but as he entered Hades Hall, he broke those hellish chains with the cry. Just listen to those demons screaming. See him bruise the serpent's head, the prisoners of hell he's redeeming. Oh, all the power of death is dead. It looked like evil would triumph over life, but God laughs at death. He mocks its so-called power. He has trampled it underfoot. And brothers and sisters in Christ, that is your victory in Jesus. So let's live that way. Paul says this in Romans 16, telling them that the victory is already theirs, but we have to live in this victory. So he says, I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Well, finally, my last heading is set apart. 
set apart. And I think it was um, Bob and Susan on Sesame Street who sang, one of these things is not like the others, one of these things is not like the others, one of these things just doesn't belong. Can you tell which thing is not like the others by the time I finish my song? And I think it was a fun and effective way to teach children to discern and distinguish between shapes and colors. I don't know in other ways it was used. And distinguishing and setting apart and, and distinguishing between things as a necessary life skill. The Lord wanted Abraham to be distinguished from other people. He wanted the people from him, the nation, the offspring that came from him to be distinguished in the world. The Lord says, I want them to be different than others. So to this point, God has spoken. Abraham has all the information he needs from the Lord. He's got all of that. That promise to him had been reaffirmed. He's been given more detail. It's Sarah. And next year, the child will be born. And by the way, here's his name. Verse 22, when he'd finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. So what now? What happens now? Abraham takes this physical mark that will set him apart. Circumcision. That's verses 23 through 27. It just wraps up this section. He circumcises himself, his son, every other male in his household. He takes the sign of the covenant that now it's much clearer to him since the Lord visited him. He simply obeyed. Now Abraham and his family are marked. They are marked as set apart to the Lord. And the application we take from this is genuine faith in the promises of God means a genuine change of life. See, that physical sign didn't change Abraham. We dealt with that last week. That was an external indication of, of an internal change of heart. It was faith. That faith then issued forth in submission to the Lord and obedience to his word. And so as Christians, circumcision no longer applies. As Christians, we take the physical sign of the new covenant in Christ. That's water baptism. We dealt with that last week. But again, that sign has no power to save us or change us. It's, a, it's an external indication of an internal change of mind and will. It's an indication of new spiritual birth in Jesus Christ. And what is the ongoing effect of having heard and then believed in the promise of God in Jesus Christ? And for this, I, I'm drawn to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. If you've read through the book of Romans, it's a, the first 11 chapters are a, an explanation, a glorious explanation, a theologically rich explanation of the gospel and every, everything that we need, possibly need to know about it. It's there. Explaining how God has been merciful. And then he says this at the beginning of 12. I appeal to you, brothers. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. He's just explained that. What, what to do? to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, that's verse one. Holy, set apart, and acceptable to God. Holy is, is set apart. And then he says this. In light of that, verse two, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so what the Apostle Paul is saying here is that when we live in the light of God's promises in Christ, we are to be set apart. 
We are to be different from the rest of the world. We're not to be set apart in ways that the Bible does not call us to be set apart, but we're to be set apart in ways that the Bible does call us to be set apart. We're to be different. And, and while for us as believers in Jesus today, not every detail of every next step we take, not, it's not all given to us. Should I take this job or that job? Should I move to this town or that town? We're not given those details. We don't have that script. But having our minds changed, changed in light of God's mercy, we can operate in this life by faith in what is clear in God's word. The things that are clear. Love God. You want to know what God's will is for your life? Love God, heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor just like you love yourself. What's God's will for my life? Bear one another's burdens. Thus fulfill the law of Christ. What's God's will for my life? Flee sexual immorality. What's God's will for my life? My life. Don't get drunk. It leads to excess dissipation. What's God's will for my life? Don't forsake assembling with other believers for worship and fellowship. What's God's will for my there's, there's so many things that we can take to heart that the Word of God is explicit about. So that when we encounter something new, something different, as the Apostle Paul says, we've built up the, the, the spiritual muscles and the discernment to know what God's will is. Some decisions in our lives are of no significant spiritual implication. Do I stay in the military? Or do I retire? Do I take this job or that job? Do I move to this town or that town? Just put it before the Lord. Maybe nothing really consequential about that. Submit it to the Word of God. But over time, over time, you test and approve what the will of the Lord is. This is how we are set apart. We submit our thinking and our decisions to what the book says. And we're helped by one another by being in a church like this where others who submit their lives and decisions to what the book says may help us through a decision to apply what the book says. We are set-apart people. Well, we don't have the whole picture of what God is doing. The Apostle Paul says we are looking through a mirror darkly, a cloudy glass. And it's true that there are a great number of things that, that God does. Isaiah 55 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So we have to live in a way that's constantly submitted. God, I don't know what you're doing here. You've allowed this suffering. You've allowed this tragedy. People died from a hurricane. A virus has spread around the world. I don't know what you're doing, God. But we don't take our eye off what the Word says. We don't take our eye off Jesus. We're set-apart people. But we can and must live by what He said, what's clear in the book. And we can know that we have been blessed in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 
Ephesians 1. We know that sin and death do not get the last laugh because Christ has conquered both. And in light of what's been revealed to us, we are to live our lives as set-apart people as we wait for the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's my exhortation from the Word of God for you today. Let's pray. Father, we are um, grateful that you speak to us and um, I pray that you will accomplish through your word your will for us. Make us more like Jesus. Keep our hope in him. Cause us to live our lives in this world as set-apart people as we wait for his glorious appearing. We want the glory of Jesus in all things. So we ask all of this in his name. Amen.